You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. A little bit about me as we get into what is for me a passion. Uh, it's prayer, and I want to tell you about how the God, how the Lord used prayer in my life. Um, I was born and raised in Salina, Kansas. Um, many of you have heard of Salina and never been there, but it's where you turn left when you're going to Colorado. Sometimes that's helpful. But uh, first 12 years of life there, uh, my dad worked for the Air Force back when it was, he served uh, during the Vietnam War. He served there as an aircraft mechanic. My mom worked with the Soil Con- Conservation Service and uh, they were both Texans. Mom lived in Cleburne, Texas most of her life. Uh, my dad lived in, lived in Italy. You don't say Italy, it's Italy. Italy, Texas, he still lives there today. And so every summer of my life, my childhood, from May till August, I would come to Texas. The most beautiful time of the year, I came to Texas from Salina, Kansas. And when I was in Texas during those months, my grandparents, who we lived with in Cleburne, would take us to uh, a church that would preach the gospel. And so we learned the gospel at Field Street Baptist Church in Cleburne, Texas. And then in the summer, they would also take us to a camp in Lathan Springs near the Brazos. And one year, I felt this tremendous conviction that I was a sinner and I couldn't fix it. And that I needed to, quote unquote, slip my feet into the aisle and come forward and pray this particular prayer. And I I think I got saved at nine. I say I think, because I don't know. After I came back to my home in Salina, I wandered from the Lord. I did not walk with the Lord. My parents both were hard workers and they taught me to work hard. I distinctly remember one time after mowing the yard, the backyard, and the, the, along the fence line, all along it, uh, my dad said, that's, that's your job. You go cut the edges of that off. And it was back when you didn't have one of these, you know, it was one of these where you had like big scissors. And at age nine, I used half of my backside to do that job, if you will. And uh, I remember my dad sending me right back out there and saying, you did a lousy job, go do it the right way. And so that was the parents I was raised by, hard workers. They taught me that, they taught my brother and sister that. Work hard, you don't have to be the smartest, you don't have to be the prettiest, you don't have to be uh, the wealthiest, but if you will stay at it, if you'll keep going, if you'll work hard and get it done right, you're gonna make it. And so that was kind of the attitude I carried into life. Keep working. Don't stop. And you'll make it somehow. After that, my parents divorced. We moved to Des Moines, Iowa for two years. I probably drifted further from the Lord in those two years. We came back to Hearst Euless Bedford. Will didn't say this, but we went to the exact same high school, L.D. Bell. And... uh, I graduated just a few years ahead of him. And uh, I remember feeling in the spring of 1988 that something was wrong with me. 
I was about to graduate in a couple of months and I kept pointing right here. It felt almost physically like something was upset inside the core of my being. And I didn't know what it was, but it felt profoundly spiritual and I would go to sleep at night trying to navigate what the heck was going on in my heart. Got dumped by a girlfriend, seemed like a good time to talk to God, so I start talking to God and I start negotiating with God. I start basically telling him, I know that I ignored you for all these years, but I wanna come back. And I started telling him all the things I was gonna stop doing, the immorality, the recklessness, the fighting, everything I was doing, all the drinking, all that craziness. I told him I'd stop and I wanted him to take me back. And I'm telling you, nothing happened. I was so broken when I felt that God didn't want to receive me back that I started telling him not only what I'd stop doing, but what I was gonna start doing. Kind of made sense to me. You can't just say what you're gonna stop doing. You gotta, you gotta let God know what you're gonna start doing. And so I told God I was going to go to church. I was gonna read my Bible. I was going to, and I'm not kidding, I literally thought the most noble thing in the world you could ever do is help a little old lady across the street. So I would determine somewhere I will find an elderly woman and I will, get, whether she wants my help or not, I will get next to her and help her. And I thought for sure in that kind of nobility, that God was somehow gonna turn the lights on for me and things were gonna turn out okay. And I can tell you honestly that I've never felt more lonely and broken than I did after I tried to offer that. I believe that God said no. And I didn't blame him a bit. It was as if there was something like this going on in my mind. You prayed to become a Christian when you were nine and then you lived this reckless life and now look at the mess you've made and of course God wouldn't want you back. Who would? And I remember being in the boys' bathroom of D Hall there in LD Bell where our lockers all were. I went into the bathroom, went into the stall and started crying. Ran into a Young Life leader in there and he said, what's wrong with you? And I said, oh, I... I told him all of these terrible things I've been done on, how I tried to negotiate with God and, and it just, you know, I basically tried to offer God a, a plan that I could come back and I feel like God said no. And he said, why don't you just come to him empty handed? And I broke that day. And I said, oh God, just save me. I can't fix what went wrong. I can't wash this filth out of me that I've engaged in and I don't really have any chips to barter with. Will you fix me? Will you save me? Will you hold on to me? I don't deserve it. I know it, but oh God, save me. And I, I felt everything changed that day. I really did. And I remember distinctly after that thinking, don't let me go don't let me go. I'm slippery and I know it. I know I'll try to get away from you. I can see that something has changed in my soul and in my heart, but don't let me go. And I've come to realize, that was when I was 18 years old, I come to realize that every time I prayed that prayer, and I still pray it now, that he was whispering to my heart, I will never let you go. I'll never let you go. And so after that, I went to the University of North Texas. Somehow I stuffed a four-year degree into five and a half years. I know it, but I did. I was able to accomplish that. I was 
at a church called Denton Bible Church, which is a great Bible teaching church. I really felt like I was there to go to school, but I know now that I was there to engage uh, in depth of Bible and life in that church, and it was a glorious and wonderful thing. All my heroes from that church and uh, that I was hearing on the radio at the time went to Dallas Seminary, so I thought, well, that's what I'm gonna go do. And um, I spent a year working for Campus Crusade carrying the suitcase of a evangelist and I, we traveled around the globe and I found out that I'm not very organized. I think he and I found that out together at the same time. I lost his passport the night before he's supposed to go to Russia. That didn't go well. Uh, but anyway, so we, that didn't go terribly well, but in that year I kind of realized, yeah, I do think I want to go to seminary. I want to speak. I want to you know, give my life to just serving the Lord. I came back, started at Dallas Seminary. Um, Boot scooting was kind of a big thing back then in our college ministry, so I went out with some friends one night, and I see this girl from Michigan wearing clogs, and every guy in the room wants to teach her how to dance, and I'm like, man, why is that girl wearing clogs? You don't wear clogs to a place like this. Turns out it was my wife. She was a dance major at TWU, getting her master's in dance, and I just kind of stood back and cast the vibe her direction, and... Well, we're married, so I guess it worked, right? Um, and, and God has been good to us. Uh, in fact, I have a picture of my family. We adopted, we have two biological uh, daughters and we have four children from Africa, one not pictured here, but this is our crew. One of those little dogs no longer with us, uh, but that's our crew, that's Illinois. And God has been so, so good to us. So good. After I graduated from Dallas Seminary, I went and planted a church in Sherman, Texas called Legacy Bible Church. And somewhere in about three years into it, as we were growing a couple hundred people, we had a million and a half dollars in the bank. Um, we had land donated to us. I mean, it didn't make any sense to me that I wanted to quit, but that's what I felt. I, I just felt exhausted not physically, but emotionally, I, I knew I was spent. And I knew that I was afraid of disappointing people at a level that was unhealthy. I, I somehow I just, I wanted people to follow me and like me and, and it was growing every day that if we enter into a building campaign, they're gonna ask me to say something like pithy like some slogan or something and, and everybody, and I knew that I had no energy or insight or vision for build a building and all of that. And so I was on a uh, vacation with my family and for a couple of days, my wife and kids went upstate New York and I was just there with the Lord. And I remember July the 9th, 2006 is the day that this changed for me. I... I remember that date because July the 8th was a UFC fight that I really wanted to watch. And, and I feel like God had spoken to me like just in my heart saying, why don't we spend the day together? That was July 8th. And I remember thinking, yeah, that'd be a great idea. I'll just spend the day with God. And I blew God off the entire day. And after the UFC fight, it was Ken Shanrock, Kim Shanrock and uh, Tito Ortiz. After the fight was over, I remember feeling this sinking sense of I was gonna spend the day with God and I didn't. So as I was laying in my bed that night, I said to God, can, can we do it tomorrow? 
And so here's what happened. I wake up the next morning and I go for a walk. And I remember saying to the Lord, I'm so discouraged. I just feel like quitting. And none of it, I don't want to quit, but I feel the want growing there. And I feel like God just whispered gently into my heart, and I don't mean audibly, but I just felt the Lord's spirit saying to me, why don't you tell me all about it? And as I poured out my heart to the Lord on that walk, I felt the weight of the world come off my shoulders. Psalm 62, verse eight, mark that verse down, underline it, highlight it, whatever you do to make a verse stand out. Psalm 62 and verse eight says, trust in the Lord at all times. Pour out your heart before him. He is a refuge for us. <laughs> and so that's what I did. Trust in the Lord, not in money, not in people, not in any of that, not in charm, not in hard work, none of that. Trust in the Lord, pour your heart out before him. He's a refuge. And I can tell you this, that often when I speak about prayer, I can't see your faces as well as I'd like, but I know what's going on for some of you. When someone stands up to say, I wanna talk to you about prayer, about the heart of prayer, often what comes into the heart of God's people is a sense of shame, that they're not a very good Christian. They ought to be praying more and they know it. A sense of guilt, that, that they, they know better, but they're, gonna, they're just not praying Listen to me, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to me and try to hear this as if you were sitting here by yourself for a moment. You are a daughter or a son of the living God. He longs for you to talk to him. He longs for you to draw near to him. It's not guilt, it's not duty, it's not shame, it's a gift. And he longs for you to know him and experience him as such a deep, life-giving, life-changing wonder of mystery. He longs for that because he knows how good he really is and he knows how tired you really are. And so it's my desire that as I share this with you from a peculiar text, I admit, I wanna share with you the heart of prayer. And I wanna ask you to push away that sense of guilt or duty or shame that maybe you ought to be more than you are in prayer and just invite you to just listen and let the Spirit of God speak to you about the joy, the mystery, and the power of prayer that is available to you as a son and a daughter of the living God. Let me pray for you. Father, we worship you. I was so blessed by the worship here this evening to sing of your excellency, to lift up the name of Jesus, to confess that he alone is God. He alone is our redeemer. He alone is our creator and satisfier. He is the giver and sustainer of life. He knows us better than we could ever imagine. Oh Lord, there's so much joy in drawing near to you. And there's so many reasons why we tend to hide from you. 
Oh God, speak to our hearts. Give us the ability to hear your voice, Lord. I'm so inadequate to preach this sermon and your people are inadequate to hear you this evening. But your spirit, as Will said, is here for this purpose that we might draw near to you, that we might love and know you. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. From 2 Samuel chapter 14, there's a context that I want you to know about. The context is this, David the giant slayer, David the sweet psalmist, David the man after God's own heart has sinned in chapter 11 of the same book. He has offended God. He took another man's wife for himself and when she ended up pregnant, he tried to hide this, conceal this and when he was unable to do that, he took this man's life and then he tidied things up and went back to his life And God in his grace brought the word of truth and conviction through the prophet Nathan and he repented. And though he repented, the effects of his sin still were at work in his family and in his life. J. Vernon McGee said, if you sin and in the process of your sinning you break your arm, God will forgive you but your arm is gonna have to heal. So David is dealing with violence in his house. It's a terrible story. A son named Amnon violates a sister named Tamar. Two years later, a son named Absalom says, I will wait my turn and in that moment, I will strike. And he kills his brother Amnon. Knowing that this is going to be a problem at the Thanksgiving meal, he just decides to take off. He goes to a place called Geshur where he has family. It's modern day Jordan. He's left town. Years later, two years later, three years later, the commander of David's army, a man named Joab, can see that there has to be a reconciliation of some kind. And so he cooks up a scheme to bring this rebellious son back. And that's where we pick it up here. In chapter 14. And it says here that Absalom has been brought back. But listen to these words. It says, Joab arose and he went to get sure and he brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. In verse 24, the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and he did not come into the king's presence. Okay, so he's been living a long ways away in exile, hiding for his life because he's guilty. And after a period of time, a long three years, one day he looks out and sees a royal entourage. It's Joab, it's one of his representatives saying, hey, the king wants you to come home. Come back to Jerusalem. And so he comes back. Now, he would have been familiar with the story of another exile, another one who was hiding, a guy named Mephibosheth, who was the grandson of the previous king. Dangerous occupation if you lived in the ancient Near East. If your grandfather was the king, you're in trouble when the new guy shows up. And so Mephibosheth gets to come back, and he comes back, and he gets to eat every day at David's table. And so when 
Absalom gets to hear, hey, the king wants me to come back. He has every right to believe that he is gonna come back, say a little speech of contrition, and then he's gonna be welcomed back into the home, back into the fellowship to come in front of his father. But that doesn't happen. The king says, you can come home, but what you can't do is see my face. And you can see where that might be a problem. Keep watching. Let's unpack this. And what I really want you to try to do if you're able is leave this room for a moment and come back to this scenario. Try to see with your eyes, hear with your ears, smell with your nose what would be going on if you were there watching this. After describing Absalom as the guy with great hair that weighs five pounds every time he cuts it, uh, then we have this description that he's super handsome and all of that. And it says here in verse 28, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem with, without coming into the king's presence. You need to know why that matters. It says two full years because every single year in Israel, there were seven annual feasts. These annual feasts were a family celebration. They really were a time where you came together and you ate, you drank, and you remembered the promises of the goodness of God together. You celebrated God together. And so Absalom is there, but he is uninvited. You call them gospel communities here? Okay, imagine your gospel community keeps putting stuff on Facebook about how they had a girls' night and you didn't get invited. They had a swim party and your kid wasn't invited. They went on vacation together in Colorado and they didn't invite you. And by the way, I was there with Will in Colorado. It was glorious. But let's just for a moment think about what does it feel like for Absalom and his family to be that close to the family they feel they should be connecting with and celebrating God with and they are left out. You can imagine how that would feel, right? That kind of exclusion would cut deep, especially in this context. Well, let's keep watching. Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. But Joab would not come to him. And so he sent a second time. And Joab would not come. And then being a resourceful and creative man, he decides to do this. He sent, said to his servants, see Joab's field is next to mine. And he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. I mean, this is not David's worship leader in the field. This is David's commander of his army. There's no fire department, right? He could have burnt the whole city down. He has taken things to another level. Would you say? He's not gonna be ignored. You know, he's, he sent, he called, it went straight to voicemail. He tried again, he got nothing. And so he said, well, you know what? I've been here two full years and three before that in exile. We're now talking five years. And so he says to his servants, set that field on fire. And then as it turns out, Joab says, well, maybe I'll go pay a visit at his house. 
Got a house call out of that one. This wild desperation has given him the response that he was hoping for from Joab. You know, a sermon inside a sermon, just let me say this. Absalom is being ignored by Joab because Joab has watched David do it. He's taking his cues from David. If David's gonna ignore this guy, so am I. It's a sad truth that even now when I'm driving down the road, if somebody does something crazy, like cut me off or something, my kids know exactly what's about to come out of my mouth. They say it before I do. They dipstick, and I'm like, oh, who taught you that? I did. Yeah, you, t- you took that from me, right? Well, Joab's being exactly like David. Just ignore this guy. I can only imagine that Absalom was trying to position himself somehow to accidentally run into David somewhere, somehow. And for two years, he's getting ghosted big time. And so he takes this step, burn the field down. Joab comes to his house. And it says that Joab arose and he went to Absalom, went to his house, said, why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, behold, I sent word to you, come here that you may send me before the king to ask, listen to these words, why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. Now slow down and listen to that response. I did it because you were ignoring me. You might rightly be asking, I thought we were going to talk about prayer. (laughs) Okay. Like, you you don't seem within a shotgun blast of prayer at this moment, but let me show you this. Why have I come out of exile? It would have been perfectly natural if maybe his answer would have been, you ungrateful brat. It's not so bad for you here. You got out of exile, so you have no national shame. You got a house with a field right next to mine, so you're pretty close to the action. You got servants, you got royal clothes, you got all that, what more do you want? And here's the answer. I didn't come out of exile for clothes, for food, for national opinion polls. I didn't come here to have servants. I came here to see my father's face. When I I became a Christian, whether it was at age nine or my senior year, I think it was age nine, but I can tell you this, I didn't know much. I knew that I had a heart condition I couldn't fix and God fixed it for me, I knew that. But then I started hearing some of the good stuff. Streets of Gold, Crystal Sea, some worship song back then, it was like, there's a mansion up in heaven with my name upon the door, got your word on that. And I'm like, hey, that sounds all right. I mean, I, this, this gig's pretty good, right? Okay, is that enough? Is that enough 
that God would give me these sweet things? Would that satisfy me in this journey between salvation and heaven's door? Could I just live on that promise of what would be in front of me? Well, I could try, but that's never enough. There's, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, there's a word that he uses often. It's called Zainzucht. It's a German word describing an emptiness and longing inside every human heart that cannot be satisfied by anything in this world. You can try to stuff marriage into it. You can try to stuff work success into it. You can try to stuff uh, physical beauty into it. And you might achieve a little bit of that, but here's ultimately what you're gonna find out. It's not enough. I just still feel a longing for something that I can't find any solution, any satisfaction for in this world. Why? Did Absalom come out of exile? Was it for stuff or was it for something better than that? Well, he answers the question. Send me in front of the king. If he finds guilt in me, let him put me to death. If not, send me back into exile. When I read this text, I knew this. The father had not stopped me at the gates when I came home. He didn't say, you know what? You get to come home. You get to have your stuff, but you're not going to see my face. He invited me home to sit at his table every single day to enjoy the king's face, to enjoy the king's food, to enjoy the fellowship of my brothers and sisters around the table with me. He invited me all the way home. So why wasn't I praying? I, don't get me wrong, I prayed. I mean, I prayed, but it was always duty. It was always a sense of, I need to do this. I should be doing this. It was never what Jesus seemed to be doing, which when the disciples asked him the one thing that they said, will you teach us this one thing? You realize they only asked him to say, to teach one thing to them. They didn't say, teach us how to preach. They didn't say, teach us how to cast out demons or perform miracles. The only thing they said, Jesus, teach us this, it was prayer. These men who grew up praying saw something very different when Jesus was praying and they said, teach us that. So why was Jesus sneaking away all the time All night sometimes, early in the morning, late at night. Why was he always going away to quiet places to pray? Because it was a feast for his soul. To sit down with his father, to be alone with his father, to pour his heart out to his father was a feast for his soul. I've got a cup sitting next to you somewhere, Will. Do you see it right there? I would, I would so love it if you would pass that around and I just want nickels, pennies, and dimes. I know you guys may not carry change, but can, can you just start that around? I just need some pennies, some nickels, and some dimes. Can you, guys, this illustration is gonna burn down quick if you don't try to give me some nickels and some pennies and dimes. Can, can you just pass it? Now, you might be going, didn't he say we fund this guy already? Yeah, I'm not looking for funding. And don't put any bills in there. Just coins, if you've got any Bitcoin, that'd be fine too. But you just a couple nickels and pennies and dimes. I just need your change. So 
So if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like that. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the, the church that I pastored for so long, the guys said, hey man, what do you want to do like a going away type thing? And uh, I said, well, what do, you, what do you think, you know? And they're like, man, we, there's a steak place down in, Dal- or down in Chicago, let's do it. And somewhere in the meal, I saw where this was going and it, the place is called RPM. And we, I didn't even know what a, a seafood tower was until that night. You guys gotta try a seafood tower. It was glorious. And I could see where this was going. There's five of us and I mean, nobody had a governor on the let's stop ordering now. And I finally, I said to the guys, I'm like, hey, guys, wait a minute. Everybody's paying their own way tonight or this is gonna be ridiculous. And as we ate that food from, I mean, we just ate way too much. I sat there and I felt like, and that's probably good, guys. That's as far as that cup needs to go. I mean, I'd, I'd feel bad if like, I ended up fleecing you here. But yeah, I just really did need that. Um, as, as, I, as I was eating that food, and we literally, I mean from appetizer upon appetizer to you name it, we had lots of stuff all the way to dessert with like glowing cotton candy with lights in it and stuff. Can I see that, Well, Yep, yep. Come on, that ain't, that ain't bad. Uh, I'll tell you this, we ate, we ate like kings that night. Five of us racked up a bill of $2,250. I'm like, whoa, that's crazy. What in the world would I be doing later that night if all I could hope for was some Fritos? You'd have a hard time tempting me with Fritos at midnight that night because I had sat at that table and eaten so well. This cup is just pennies, quarters, nickels and dimes. Just change, just change. But what if I walked around here and just kept shaking it at you? What if I just kept saying, please, just a little more. Come on, just a little bit more. At what point would you say, bro, the illustration's done. It's over. Like we're half embarrassed for you right now. Right? You're like, Will's probably already thinking that, man, bro, whatever you thought this was gonna be, it didn't. Well, guess what? This isn't me doing this. This is you. Hear me now. Listen closely. If you don't sit at his table and eat, you're gonna be like a beggar shaking your cup at work asking your boss to include and affirm you. You're gonna go home and you're gonna pester your spouse to acknowledge that you loaded the dishwasher. Yeah, that you cleaned this or that. You're gonna try to get on Facebook and you're gonna do something like this to your friends. Give me a like. Because if you don't eat at his table, you'll eat the scraps of this world. We all do. We all do that. Do you know what happens if Absalom comes home and David says, my son, I love you. Sit with me. Eat with me. See my face. 
Eat my food. Hear your brothers and sisters recount stories of God's faithfulness. Sit with me every day and it'll be not only a feast for your body, it'll be a feast for your soul to sit with the king and the king's children. That's prayer. And God didn't stop you or me when we came out of exile and say, you know what, you can have your house, you can have your servants, and you can have your national respect restored. He didn't say that. He said, come home. Now listen to me, friends. Prayerlessness was not my problem before I, in 2006. Prayerlessness was a result of the problem. The real problem was this. I was self-reliant. I was convinced that if somehow I could just make people like me, if I could just somehow make people appreciate and include me or whatever it was, that I could make it. And that was always shaky ground. And that's why I didn't pray is because I didn't depend on God. I was dependent on me and I was exhausted. And this is why Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Trust in me. God loves you. He's not satisfied just to give you a mansion in heaven, streets of gold and a crystal sea. Heaven starts now, believer, Because Christ, we get to see a reflection of that sweet fellowship and it's called prayer and God wants you to sit with him. Pour out your heart to him. Get up off the ground receiving the world's scraps. Get up, sit at the table with the Lord who saved you and confess your heart to him. Tell him you want more of him. Tell him you long for a deeper relationship. Don't just wait for heaven. And in the meantime, embarrass yourself by shaking your cup everywhere you go with the hope that somebody's going to include you, affirm you, or that you're gonna rise through the ranks at work and then you'll feel satisfied. Wasn't it Jim Carrey who said, I wish everyone could become rich and famous so they'd know that that's not the answer. George Harrison of the Beatles said, after you've met a few people, you've traveled the world, you've made some money, you look up and you say, is that it? Now that's a voice of good authority, right? Hear me now as if you were the only one in this room. God wants you to come all the way home, all the way home. He wants you to come in and talk to him. And if that want is not there, if that want has died in you, tell him, I want the want. I don't want to carry the burden and the weight of expectation any longer. I want to know you because he wants to draw near to you. Some of you are probably thinking this, how do you know? I mean, how do you know? I mean, David shut his son down. What if God did that to me? What if I reach out my hands and say, Father, I want to come home. I want to believe this, but how do I know that he wants me closer? Well, hear the words of Absalom again. I want full access or I want the death sentence. That's what he says. 
I wanna come into the presence of the king and if there's guilt in me, let him execute me. Let him put me to death. So you hear that, right? Give me full access or give me execution. You know how I know the Lord wants you to draw near? Jesus got the death sentence so we could get the full access. He became poor so that we could become rich. He got left alone, ashamed, embarrassed, executed outside the gate so that you could be brought home. Oh, if he'd give us his son, how much more? All things. So here's what I want you to hear. Absalom's story does not end well. A bitterness rises up and it goes bad. But for us, everything that was gonna go bad in front of the Father happened that day on the cross. Jesus took our place. He died our death and he rose again victorious for us. That means the door's open. That means you get to come home. That means you get to pour out your heart before the Father. And listen, you're not gonna surprise him with your confession, right? Like you might be thinking, well, I see with that whole pour out your heart thing, that's a problem for me. Because if I did that, that's like a lot of yucky stuff. That's a lot of filthy stuff. I can't, I can't. okay, you're not gonna surprise him with your confession. He already knows and he loves you. And I wouldn't be here right now and neither would you unless the Father wanted it this way. He wanted you to hear this, come all the way home. This is the gift that was open to us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Not to eat the world's scraps, but to feast with the King and his children. That's what we're gonna do in Georgetown. Can I, can I ask you this? I don't know you and you don't know me, we're gonna pray for providence, that this next season is more fruitful than anything you've ever seen. I want you to stay with us in prayer. Starting a church is hard stuff. We need your prayer. God is gonna listen as you talk to him. God is going to listen as you draw near to him. And it's gonna be a feast for your soul. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.